Genesis chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we hear your word, Speak as we who have your spirit, who wrote this word, give us understanding, give us faith, help us to see, Lord, with eyes of faith, what this means, help us to see with eyes of faith, the promise of Christ's return, and let us live in that, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's Thanksgiving, so it's time I tell you about pilgrims. The Puritans who left England for Amsterdam and then Amsterdam for Massachusetts are often called the pilgrims. Our Thanksgiving meal that we will share this week was, according to tradition, first established by these Christ followers who are also known as separatists. They were called separatists because they couldn't bear the thought of the Church of England making theological compromises with the Roman Church, especially where it came to worship. 
They believed, as we do, that how we worship as Christians is prescribed to us by God himself. So what we include in our worship service are the elements that the scriptures say should be included in our worship service. So we read the Bible a lot. And we confess our sins and we remind one another of the gospel and we pray and we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We preach the Bible. We listen to it preached. We do baptisms. We share in the Lord's Supper together. This, this principle was such a conviction for the separatists that they were willing to leave the Church of England at risk of prosecution because parting from the national church meant disobedience to the king. And so leaving the national church meant they also had to leave the nation. When they came to Plymouth, they were not, and I think it's important to remember this, they were not attempting to establish or to find heaven on earth. So, in other words, we don't call them pilgrims because they thought that America was the holy land. They were pilgrims because all who are in Christ are pilgrims. Well, there, there, I say that because there's two senses in which we use the word pilgrim. The, the, the first sense is, is to describe people who are making a pilgrimage. So we see that Muslims making the trip to Mecca or Hindus going to Puri or Mormons going to Salt Lake are pilgrims because they're on a pilgrimage. They're going to a place that they consider to be holy. But the older sense of the word pilgrim, the way it's used in the 1600s, the way that we find it in the old King James Bible, is, is slightly different than that. that. That this Hebrews 11, we've been talking about a lot these past few weeks, the first place that we see the word pilgrim used in the, in the uh, 17th century way is in Hebrews 11. And I've grown rather fond of this passage as we've worked our way through Abraham's story. Hebrews 11 says this in the King James Version. Let me read it for you. Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith. Speaking of Abraham and his kids. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. What Hebrews commends in Abraham is that he knew he was a stranger and a pilgrim. That was his confession. That marked his life. He knew the world was not his home. And so he lived like this world was not his home. Because he took solace in God's promises to him. He was living in God's promises. And this is the sense in which the pilgrims who came to this continent 400 years ago would have described themselves. They were 11, Hebrews 11, 13 pilgrims, not Mecca-seeking pilgrims. And we're going to see the pilgrim sensibility, this pilgrim sensibility of Abram in our text today. Now, that's Abram. By contrast, we will see someone else. Lot. Lot does not see that heavenly city whose foundations are built by God that we just sang about. He does not see the promises which are far off, which we see in Hebrews. We're going to find that when Lot sees, when Lot lifts his eyes up, he sees the cities built by man. He sees the earthy things, where the things of this world are abundant and certain 
And that's where he puts his trust. So we have the pilgrim and the not a pilgrim, the, the resident. Now this contrast between Abram's trust in the Lord and Lot's trust in the world begins at the beginning of our text as they're coming up out of Egypt. And we ended with this section last week, and it's our starting point today. So Abram went up from Egypt, verse 1. He went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had. Remember how he got all of that. They're going up, Lot's with him, and they go into the Negev, which is kind of a wilderness area. And verse 2 says, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. He got all that from Egypt. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel. And if you remember last week, he goes back to that place where it all started for him. After going down into Egypt and and sinning horrifically against the Lord and against his wife, he comes back up out of Egypt to the last place where he was in fellowship with God. And he repents there and he worships the Lord. By the mercy of God, the Lord had rescued him out of Egypt and out of his Foolish predicament. Remember that? And Abram responds by repentance and faith. Repentance, worship, belief. That's the end of the Egypt episode, but it's the beginning of today's trial. The story begins with worship. Now, alongside Abram is a man we haven't talked much about. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, after God called Abram, and Abram listened and obeyed the Lord, you have this little blurb that says, and Lot went with him. Well, we haven't talked about much that, uh, that much. Lot is Abram's nephew. Lot's father and Abram's brother, Haran, uh, same guy. They, he died way back in Ur of the Chaldeans, back in Abram's hometown. And from that point on, Abram had taken uh, his nephew, Lot, under his wing to care for him. So time has passed between Genesis 12 and 13. Lot is now a grown man. He's able to care for himself, make his own decisions, but he's still kind of following in Abram's shadow, isn't he? He's, he's been hanging around Abram for quite a while now, from Ur to Haran, from Haran to Canaan, from Canaan to Egypt, from Egypt back to Canaan. He's walked a long way with him. Today, we find out why Moses has included Lot in this story, because there's a lot of other people who are a part of that entourage that we don't read about. Lot is, though, an important character. As Abraham has grown wealthy through this sojourning, Lot has also benefited from this, from being near Abram. We see this in verse 5. Verse 5, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. How much does he have? Is he like a rookie shepherd learning from Abraham? No, keep reading. Lot has so many flocks and herds and people that, verse 6, that the land could not support them both. Their possessions are so great, they could not dwell together. Now, I want to point out something that Moses has pointed out to us. Just kind of underlined it here for us. Do you see that word land there, there? The land could not support them both. Which land is this? Remember, this is the land of promise. This supposedly great and awesome land that was worth leaving behind Mesopotamia for. Last week, this land had a famine. And that led Abram to doubt and sin. This week, the land is causing problems again, isn't it? It isn't providing enough for both Abram's and Lot's 
flocks and herds. And the result is what we see in verse 7. And there was strife. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. This, this isn't good. Remember how the famine wasn't good last week? This strife isn't good. They have survived the trip to Egypt miraculously by the hand of God. But if something isn't done now, there may end up being a war between Lot's people and Abram's people. And to add to that difficulty, they're not the only people competing for all this, or what little grazing land there is. Second part of verse 7 reminds us the Canaanites are still there. And now we get another group of people. The Perizzites are also dwelling in the land. Right? So we've got this conflict that has arisen, and it is certain trouble, certain war, if Abram doesn't do something. So what will Abram do? Will he give up on this venture altogether and just go back to Haran? He could do that. He's been, he's been pretty successful so far. He could return home a very wealthy man. He could call it good. Or he could tell Lot, Lot, you've got to go home now. And he could even threaten him with violence. And that is the, one of the options at his disposal. How do you resolve a dispute like this with a family member? How should we resolve disputes with family members? Many of you are going to be with family this week, aren't you? And by the chuckles, I know you're thinking about the disputes that will come up. There will be old issues that come up at Thanksgiving. Unresolved disputes. Decades old disputes. Maybe it's inheritance stuff. Maybe it's something you said you should not have said a decade ago. Maybe it's a dispute how to, how to care for aging parents. There are lots of things to fight with about family. Politics, relationships, money, how to cook the turkey. Whatever it is, how you, how you respond is going to depend on what is in your heart, where your hope is, where your trust is. Abram, we're going to see, is able to respond to Lot with peacekeeping in mind. And the reason why Abram is able to be so peace-seeking is not because Abram thinks Lot is such a great guy, and it's not because he's afraid of Lot. Rather, Abram responds to this situation peaceably because Abram's hope is in the Lord. Look at verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, literally saying we're brothers. It's not the whole land before you separate from me. You take the left, I'll go to the right. If you do the right, I'll go to the left. Now, if Abram were trusting in the things of the world, what would he have done right here? If Abram's hope was in wealth, if his hope was, was in prosperity, he would not be so generous. He would scout out the best grazing land for himself that, that area with the best prospects for growth, and he would say, Lot, I'm going here. Over to that rich grazing area. You are junior to me. You can't stay with me. You've got to go somewhere else. In other words, Abram would have looked out for himself and his own needs first, even if that meant putting his relationship with Lot at risk. Now, has Abram done that before? Only recently, 
Yes, he has. He probably still has his own words ringing in his ears. Say, you're my sister. That it may go well with me because of you that my wife may be spared for your sake. That's the selfish Abram we saw last week. This is a generous Abram. This time, because of the way that God's mercy has changed him, Abram chooses to preserve the relationship rather than himself. And he does that through showing selflessness and generosity toward Lot. He's growing, isn't he? Praise God. By the mercy and the grace of God, he's growing in sanctification. Because he trusts the Lord's promises and not what he can see, Abram's able to be generous. And he gives Lot the first pick of all the land that is in front of them. And I believe that maybe this is what Paul was thinking about when he gives Timothy instructions regarding the rich. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be, look at the word, generous and ready to share. Abram was generous and ready to share, wasn't he? They were to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's what Abram's doing. He's doing good toward Lot. He's generous and ready to share. And he's able to do that because he isn't putting his hope in his riches. He's putting his hope in God and in God's promises. What's motivating him to do that? Because he wants to take hold of that which is truly life. Worldly wealth, the security of the things of the world, that's not truly life. And Abram has realized that by now. Enjoyment of the Lord is truly life. That's where our true satisfaction is. And Abram has grown to understand that reality, and so he's generous toward Lot. Generosity is a value in our culture, a virtue even. And that's good. I'm not going to poo-poo that. Oh, that more Christian virtues were still considered good in our culture. From a Christian perspective, generosity is a virtue because it is an outflowing of our hope in the Lord. We are free to be generous because of our hope in the Lord. That's different, though, than the way that the culture approaches generosity. See, according to worldly principles, generosity is a good thing, but it is a response to guilt. You'll see what I mean this week. This week we have a God-oriented holiday on, on Thursday in Thanksgiving. Praise God. I love Thanksgiving. Because it is the only holiday that points us directly to the Lord. There's, there's no getting around it. He is the one that we are thankful for. And two. But after that, we have four consumerist high holy days. Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, Cyber Monday, and then Giving Tuesday. 
And it's ordered in such a way that you max out the credit card through the weekend. And by Tuesday, after you feel guilty for the amount of money that you spent on yourself, you dropped a few coins in the Salvation Army Santa pot as a guilt offering. Giving Tuesday is the world's approach to generosity. The Christian virtue of generosity is an outflowing of the freedom we have. Not the guilt, the freedom we have as a result of the hope we have in Christ. We are freed from trusting in the things of this world. Our fingers are loosed from the things of this world. And so out of joy, not out of guilt, but joy, we're generous towards others. In other words, generosity is the fruit of a heart whose hope is in Christ. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, this holiday season, be generous. Be generous towards family, as Abram was toward Lot. Be generous towards your neighbor. Be generous towards your church. Be generous toward unreached people that you'll never meet by giving to missions. Be generous, not because you're trying to make things right, but because you are already made right. You're already justified. You have already been made right in Christ, and so you are freed to bear the fruit of hoping in Christ. So be generous. The question before us now in our text, though, is what will Lot do in response to Abram's generosity? What will he do? At first glance, it seems like, well, he's got to part ways with Abram. And maybe that's true. But I don't think it is. I don't think he has to. Remember what we know. Abram is the one that God has given those seven promises to. That's what started this whole story. The Lord called Abram. The promises are going to Abram. And Lot knows that. And Moses, the the writer of Genesis, knows that we know that Lot knows that. And Lot also knows that it has been through being in, in Abram's orbit that he has become as wealthy as he has. So I believe that the Spirit is indicating to us that if Lot had come to faith in the Lord's promises, he would do everything he possibly could to avoid parting ways with Abram. The proper answer for Lot, the faithful, faith-filled answer for Lot would be to say, Uncle, where can I go? You are the one that the Lord has promised blessing to. I can't part ways with you. I will follow you. I will leave everything behind to follow you because I want to serve the Lord God and see his promises fulfilled in you. I want to know the joy of being near the Lord. That's what he should have said. He said, well, Dustin, how do you know he should have said it? Because, because centuries following this incident, one of Lot's own descendants will say something like that. Do you know the story of Ruth? Ruth is a Moabite. We could call her a Lotite because the Moabites come from Lot's family. We'll learn about that gross story a little bit later. And Ruth marries into an Israelite family. In other words, a descendant of Lot marries a descendant of Abraham. Well, Ruth's husband dies and her father-in-law dies and her brother-in-law dies. And as a result, her mother-in-law, Naomi, who she's been living with, is absolutely broken by all the death around her. And she tells Ruth, you stay with me, things will go poorly for you. You should go back to your family. 
But Ruth, by this point, has come to see something. She's come to faith. She's come to see that God's promises reside with the Israelites, with the descendants of Abraham, not the descendants of Lot. She's come to love her mother-in-law. She doesn't want to leave her, despite what Naomi tells her. And so this is what Ruth says. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That's what Lot should have said. Ruth, the descendant of Lot, expresses the faith that Lot should have had. Lot, though, does not have that faith, does he? Lot has become enamored with the wealth that he has accumulated, and he cannot see through all of his wealth the riches of God's promises, the treasure in heaven, the pearl of great price, as it were. So watch what happens. Look at verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes. Uh, Eye lifting is a very important part of today's text. So here he's looking. What is he going to see? Will he see with pilgrim eyes? Will he see the Lord's promises? Will he see from afar the city with foundations whose designer and builder is the Lord? Or will he only see the world? He lifted up his eyes and he saw the Jordan Valley, the world. Well, here we go. And it's well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. In, in, in the direction of Zoar, it's actually where he's looking. So e- Zoar is near Sodom. Egypt is somewhere else. The syntax is kind of funny. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and John Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Lot, you were close. So close. Well, I want you to see what this reminds us of. Let me reword the words just a little bit for you so you can get the sense for it. Uh, take, I don't know, can you put it on a blank? Okay, that, that's fine. Uh, Lot saw that the valley was good for providing food and that it was a delight to the eyes. And so he chose the valley. What does that sound like? It's like Eve, isn't it? Look at Genesis 3, 6. Now you can pull that one up. So, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took it, its fruit, and ate. You see the similarities? That's the, that's the, the sense that Moses is giving to us. Lot is being given the choice of whether to go into the promise of the unseen hope, The hope that has only been heard and not yet seen. And in that hope is that future restoration of Eden. But that hope is with God in heaven. That's his choice. He could choose that one that you can't see that's with God and Abram. But instead of trusting in that unseen hope, Lot falls prey to the old temptations of Eve. The old temptations of the flesh. He trusts his eyes instead of trusting the Lord. He sees the richness of the valley and he salivates at it. 
He can already envision it. My flocks will be over here. My herds will be over here, grazing on that rich pasture land. And we will have this land for generations and generations to come. He's seeing in his mind the abundance of the wealth that he can extract from this land. Look at the language. He saw that it was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Rather than seeing heaven in the promises of God, he's seeing heaven on earth. We call this, here's your theological word for the day, an over-realized eschatology. He thinks that the promises of God can be shortcutted and grasped in the here and now by his own power. And the thought of that is irresistible to his flesh. And if there's any doubt that he has chosen poorly, that he's made the wrong choice, the worldly choice, look at all the hints that Moses drops in here for us. Lot go chosen poorly. For one, he's looking out in the direction of Zoar. Now, Zoar isn't actually a place yet. That place, that direction, will earn the name Zoar because it means little city, because that's the city, the little city, that Lot has to escape to when he leaves Sodom. So he's already seeing his future in front of him, which is why Moses tells us here, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah which is to say the Lord is going to destroy the place that Lot is headed to. And then he's going to have to flee from that place to the other place that he's seeing out on the horizon. He's seeing his future before him. He thinks it's beautiful. The Lord knows it's not. That's not our only clue that Lot has chosen poorly. Look at verse 11. When Lot chose this valley, Lot journeyed east. Now, if you've been with us, for much time at all in our Genesis study, you know that's not good. Adam and Eve, after their sin, they were exiled east of Eden. Cain, after his sin, he went further east into Nod. And then out in the east is where he established his wicked cities. And then in chapter 11, the eastward people are the ones who build Babel. East, so far in Genesis, has been bad, bad, and very bad. So Lot's eastward journey is a clue he has chosen poorly. And it's not all. That's not the only clue. Those aren't the only two clues. It's not just this eastward movement that clues us in. It's also the movement toward the cities. Look at verses 12 and 13. Abram settled in the land. What is the land? The land of promise. He settled in the land of Canaan. That is to say, the land of promise. He's, he's okay living on the land as a sojourner and a pilgrim because his hope is where? It's forward. It's in the promises. Look at Hebrews 11 again. I would just do this. Memorize Hebrews 11. And, and you, will, you will know Genesis better. Hebrews 11, 9 through 10. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to this city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Not so with Lot. Lot settles among the cities he can see. Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Cities, so far in Genesis, are kind of like eastward movement. So far, cities are are the emblem of human strength and cunning and worldly wisdom. That doesn't mean that cities in themselves are inherently evil. 
the idea of city is not inherently evil. Abraham was looking forward to a city, a good one, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the same city that we are anticipating. The, the, the new creation kingdom is one giant city that God has prepared for Abraham and his true offspring. There's something, though, about man-made cities in Genesis and today that seems to amplify human sin. Think back to Cain's cities. The first place we see rebellion against the Lord. Or Nimrod in his great cities in, in chapter 10. Or Babylon in chapter 11. Cities throughout the Bible are those places where confidence in human achievement and rebellion against God seem to fester together and reverberate in particularly evil ways. This is not to say that there isn't sin in rural villages. There's three judges. There's plenty of sin in rural villages. There's plenty of wickedness wherever there are people. But anecdotally, just look today at the concentration centers of evil. Notice where the hospitals doing transgender mutilation are. They're in the cities. Look at the concentration of abortion mills. They're in the cities. Look at the places where pornography and prostitution are flowing out of. Look for where the murder rates are the highest. Look for where drug use is the most concentrated. It's the cities. There, there's, there's, yes, there's research and development and technological innovation happening in the cities like nowhere else. But those two themes are not disconnected. Wherever there is hope in what humanity can achieve on our own, there will be a more pronounced rebellion against God. And Lot sees that. Lot, Lot saw that hope in the things of the world. He sees that, that all that humanity can achieve in these cities in the valley. And they look wonderful to him. Because they look like security to him. They look like wealth to him. And he saw that hope as greater and more certain than the hope of the unseen promises. And, and, and he says, and Moses gives us this little uh, inf- this information here, that Lot is making this choice, hoping in the cities and in the fertile land, despite the fact that where he is going is a dangerous place. Here's what Moses says is known about Sodom. And I think when he says that, it's not dramatic irony. Everyone knows this. The men of Sodom were wicked. Great sinners against the Lord. And Lot says, I want that. Because the land is fertile there. And I know that I can feed my flocks there. Now, there's more of Lot's story to come, actually, for the next few chapters. But let's now turn our attention to the hopeful one, to the pilgrim, okay? Verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. Now, I told you some eye lifting was happening in this text. Lot lifted up his eyes. Here it is the Lord instructing Abram to lift his eyes. Moses is clearly contrasting these two men. Since this instruction is from the Lord, we should expect something a little bit different here. Lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are, north and south, east and west. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And what's happening here is that the Lord, in his 
speech and his words to Abram is instilling in Abram eyes of faith. This is how, because the Lord is the one speaking here, telling him to look. He's, he's showing him what he sees. This is how Abram sees that city that God is building. Because the Lord is instilling faith in him. This is how, as Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced when he saw my day. When did Abram see his day? When the Lord gave him eyes of faith. The word of God to Abram brings to Abram the eyes of faith. And what the Lord tells Abram in his word to him is, is a continuation, but not just continuation, continuation, but an advancement of his earlier promise to Abram. Remember back in Genesis twelve seven, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. And we talked about that. Now the Lord is saying, to you and to your offspring I will give this land forever. Do you see the expansion? We should observe here that the Lord hasn't changed his promise. Not that the Lord has changed his mind. He's expanded it from just the offspring to Abraham and the offspring from an uncertain time frame to an eternal time frame. The promises of God, know this, when you read your Bible, know this, the promises of God never shrink. They never contract. They always expand as they are further revealed. And we'll see that all throughout the scriptures. We're learning in Genesis how to read the scriptures. God begins with Abraham by opening the the door of his promises just a little bit. And, And there's a sliver of light. And then he gradually opens the door more and more, revealing more and more light. What is behind the door is what is known as mystery in scripture. And we get greater and greater revelation of that as Scripture progresses. This is especially true for the promises to Abraham. The land was at first only revealed to be for the offspring. Now we know that that Abram will have some part in it. It won't be much, maybe just a grave, but he will have a part in the land. Notice also that the Lord here says that the land is for Abram's offspring forever. Now, as Scripture progresses, we'll see that doesn't mean only Canaan is to be for Abram's offspring, but for the entire kingdom of God, the entire new creation. As far north and as far south and as far east and as far west as the eyes of faith can see. Even the identity of the offspring is gradually revealed in Scripture. Look at verse 16. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Now, who is he talking about? Because Abram's only going to have Isaac. Who are the offspring here? Well, in one sense, this will be Israel, Jacob's kids and and all his descendants. And, And in the book of Numbers, as you read the book of Numbers, when Israel's enemies see them, they will say, They cover, speaking of Israel, they cover the face of the earth. They are innumerable like the dust of the earth. So so that fulfillment of this promise that your offspring will will cover the dust of the earth, there's partial fulfillment of that in the book of Numbers, which isn't very far into your Bible. But that is only a tiny part, a sliver of the light of the promise that is fulfilled. In Christ, what happens? 
People from all the nations will be included in the offspring of Abraham because Christ is the true offspring. Revelation 7, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. What did God tell Abram? I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one could count the dust, your offspring would also be counted, which is to say they won't be able to be counted. And John is in heaven and he sees a great multitude that nobody can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So what is partially revealed here about the land is partially fulfilled in Moses's life, in, in Abram's life and then Moses' life and then in David's life. And it will be more fully revealed in Christ and more completely fulfilled in the new creation. And what is partially revealed about the offspring will be partially fulfilled in Moses' life. But what will later be more fully revealed about the offspring, Jesus Christ, will show greater fulfillment in the new creation. Do you see what I mean? The door's opened a little bit. It opens up wide. So we're going to come back to these promises to Abram again because this is, this is the story of Abram, the promises. We're going to come back to these again and again, but I want you to see that it's not that the promises change as we keep reading in Abram's story. They expand. The door to the wonder of God's promises is open just a sliver in Genesis It's opened a little more by the prophets. It's opened wide by the Christ and the apostles. And then when Christ returns, the entire wall is torn down so that we experience fully and completely the promises of God. Well, after the Lord makes these great promises, expands these great promises to Abram, look what he tells him in verse 17. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Okay, so here's your promises, now go take a walk. That what he's, this, is, this is different than that. In the ancient Near East, in this a- Abram's culture and Moses' culture, kings would do this. They would go on these, these walks across conquered land. Walking over the land was, was their way of symbolically showing who the new king was. If you buy a big lot of property, you want to walk it. You want to walk all the way around it. This is mine. This is mine. This is mine. There's something to that. Walking over the land was, was the way of showing who the new king is. Well, Abram hasn't conquered the land yet, has he? There's still Canaanites in the land. But Abram is the image bearer of the Lord. Do you remember what that means? That, that means he's the, the one who represents God. He's the image bearer of the Lord. And the Lord is the king of all creation. So when the Lord sends his image bearer, his ambassador across the land, what he's, what he's commanding Abram to do is, is to show who the new king is. Not Abram, but God. Remember, no legal transaction has taken place yet. Walking this land did not secure ownership of Canaan for Abram. But walking it made Abram better understand who he was. Abram is the representative of the Lord. Wherever he walks, the glory of God is seen because he is the image bearer of God. He's the representative of the Lord. He's also the one whose life is now being lived in the hope of God's promises. So when he's walking the land of Canaan as an ambassador of the Lord God, he's saying God's promises are so certain 
Though this land is inhabited by Canaanites and Perizzites, it is as if the Lord has already taken it. Abram's feet walking throughout Canaan are the beautiful feet that Isaiah talks about. Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's what Abram's doing. Walking across the land saying, the Lord is king over all of this, and this, and this, and this, and I'm his representative. He reigns over all of it. His peace will be made known in this land. And Isaiah continues in that passage, and he expands it as God's promises expand. He says, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now, Abram walked Canaan. We walk to the ends of the earth. That's the walking that we get to do. We, Abram walked the land to say that the Lord is, by his promises, already reigning over Canaan. You and I, wherever we go with the good news of salvation, we go to the ends of the earth and say God has revealed his salvation here in Christ. That's why Paul in Romans 10 repeats this. How then will they call on him in whom they've never believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What good news? That God reigns through Jesus Christ, our King. Abram does as the Lord commands. He walks across that little land, shows that God reigns. We are sent out across the earth, the greater land, as the offspring of Abraham, showing God reigns through Christ. Amen? Well, Abram does as the Lord commands, and then the passage ends just like it began. Verse 18, So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Began in worship, didn't it? Beginning of the chapter, worship. And it ends in worship. The closest Abram ever gets to the promises is when he is in worship to the Lord at the altar of God. That's where God's promises are most tangible, most real to him. It's not when he's trusting in himself that he knows God's promises but when he's trusting in the Lord, when he is in communion with God. And the same is true for you and I who are in Christ. When we are in the world, when we are in trials, the world seems so consequential. Everything is terrifying and exhilarating. And it seems like that's all there is. But, but when we come together... In Christ, as the body of Christ, to worship the Father, Son, and Spirit every Sunday, our, our perspective changes, doesn't it? We get eternal perspective. We are able to see better through eyes of faith because we hear the Word of God. The world becomes smaller and less dangerous 
and God is bigger. And our salvation in Christ is bigger. And the cross is bigger. And the resurrection is more awesome. That only happens through worship. That's why Abram keeps going back to worship. The pilgrim life is a life of repentance and faith, hoping in the Lord, trusting in the Lord, joyful obedience to the Lord, worship of the Lord, and repentance and faith, and hoping in the Lord, and trusting in the Lord, and so on. Again and again, we are never home. Not in this world. But we are closest to home we are before the throne of God together in worship. So let's thank the Lord for that privilege and let's worship him.